You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark and Jace. This is episode number 75. If you're new to the show or whether you've been listening for a while, we appreciate you tuning into the podcast. If you're not aware, on this podcast, we share the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires and unveil their current portfolio allocations. Our hope is to bring these stories to you and help all of us learn about how these millionaires have achieved success. A special thanks to Equity Multiple for supporting the episode. One of the tried and true paths to becoming and staying a millionaire is establishing passive income streams. Perhaps the most tried and true passive income channel for savvy investors is commercial real estate. Equity Multiple connects accredited investors with pre-vetted, exclusive commercial real estate investments with investment minimums as low as $10,000. With Equity Multiple, you can allocate a meaningful portion of your portfolio to professionally manage commercial real estate and create a stronger and more diversified portfolio. Head to equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires to learn more. Again, that's equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires. If you'd like to invest in our multifamily opportunities, feel free to email us at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We'll jump on a quick call with you to discuss our opportunities and strategy. We're now partnering with a couple partners that have a large track record of success and high historical returns. We have opportunities available now for both accredited and non-accredited investors in different locations throughout the country. On last week's episode, we had Allison. Allison was a nurse whose husband works as an engineer in the Air Force. Together, they have a net worth of $1.7 million and eight single-family rentals. She also has money invested in the markets through both retirement and non-retirement accounts. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out. That's episode number 74. Two weeks ago, we interviewed Robert Kiyosaki, the famous author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. We had a brief discussion with him about personal finance, investing, asset allocation, and real estate. We also asked Robert about how he invests. Next week, we'll have another millionaire interview following this one. This week, we have Hunter with a net worth of $1.4 million. He's a certified financial planner with about $500,000 in the market and 100000 in home equity, and then he shares his detail and further stories on how he's been able to achieve financial success. If you'd like to be on the show as either a millionaire or one who's close to reaching a net worth of a million dollars, send us an email. Again, our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We'd love to unveil your allocation and your story and help teach others about your investing mindset. But without further ado, let's get into this week's episode with Hunter. Hunter, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're doing now? Uh, sure, definitely. Thanks for having me uh, today, guys. I definitely appreciate y'all taking the time. My name is Hunter. Uh, I live in Grapevine, Texas. Uh, for the past about six years, I've been in the uh, financial industry. Uh, I'm a certified financial planner. Uh, I do financial advising and financial planning for a living. Uh, I work for a registered investment advisor, a uh, fiduciary tend to work with the mid to high net worth clients, um, but, you know, can certainly handle, you know, ultra net worth as well as, as lower net worth. Uh, so that's, that's what I've been doing. So when you say net high net worth, what, what kind of range of, of net worth does that fall into with somebody that would come and work with you? Uh, 
so that's a good question. Uh, generally speaking, you know, someone that has a, a hundred thousand or $150,000 net worth, even though that's everything to them, uh, I could generally, you know, help them out without having to, you know, charge them. Um, you just don't have a lot of complex planning needs if you're, you know, 30 years old and have a hundred thousand dollars and own a house. Generally, once you start getting up into that one, one and a half, uh, maybe even three quarter of a million plus range, that's where you start coming into, you know, issues when it comes to tax efficiency, risk mitigation. Uh, so at that point, you know, you can, you can really start to, to see an advantage of working with, with a professional. Awesome. I think we'll get a little bit more into that here in the, uh, in the episode, but what, what is your current net worth right now, personally? So personally, my wife and I, uh, I'd say today we're probably at about the 1.4 to $1.5 million range, uh, give or take. Awesome. And how's that broken up? Uh, so it's funny. Uh, right now it's broken up, not how I want it to be, uh, mainly because a large portion of my, my net worth is uh, tied up in a, a house down in Austin that I'm about to sell. But basically that home is probably anywhere from about half to three quarter million, give or take on the day. Um, and then I have about half a million dollars uh, in the market right now. Uh, that's close to 50-50, maybe a little bit higher on the taxable side uh, than the retirement side. Uh, and then we probably have another 100K or so equity in our house. Um, and then, you know, we carry a mortgage there. Um, if you if you want to break down the investments, uh, I'd say my biggest individual position across accounts, um, we own probably about 100,000, uh, give or take, of SPY, so Spider, you know, S&P 500. Uh, I trade in and out of some inverse leverage securities. Those are usually anywhere from about 5 to 15% of my overall portfolio. And I tend to do those uh, using something called portfolio margin, which I can certainly touch on if y'all like. It's, it's a little more of an advanced concept that most average investors won't get into. Uh, I own a, a lot of the uh, esports and, and gaming stocks. Um, you know, that's what I'm high on these days. Your EAs, your Nvidia's, your Activisions. Uh, I own, you know, most of the Fang, Apple, Amazon, Netflix. Uh, I own Disney, Home Depot, Constellation Brands. Uh, so basically, most of the things you would find in S and P 500, there's about 15 of them that I also have about a ten to $25,000 stake in. Uh, my one position I'm currently in that I'm unhappy about is Facebook. I got about thirty-five or 40000 in there. I was trying to make a, a cute play when they got crushed on earnings a couple quarters back, and I've unfortunately not been able to exit that position yet, but I certainly will uh, when I get a chance. Uh, and then most of this more aggressive stuff's in the taxable accounts and the retirement accounts. I've pretty much indexed with SPY. And then for my bond positions and the retirement accounts, uh, I use a convertible bond ETF instead of a traditional bond ETF. I'm, I'm a big fan of convertible bonds. Uh, and then I also like to use uh, some high yield, uh, mid-junk grade bonds in, in my taxable accounts as well. Uh, pretty much anything in the 7 to 13% uh, kind of yield to maturity range is what I'm looking for when I enter those positions. And I like to do those in about you know, a five to $10,000 lot size. Uh, other than that, you know, various little itty bitty, uh, you know, speculative positions and a few things like that uh, across the portfolios. Awesome. And how long have you kind of had this portfolio breakdown? Or is this kind of something that's evolved over the last decade or so? <laughs> so that's funny. Uh, I guess you could say this particular allocation uh, is ever increasing as, I, you know, my salary has gone up as I've made more money. 
when I was younger, you know, 10 plus years ago, I, I did all the, the things young people do. You know, I, I played with penny stocks. I bought things that I knew. And, you know, even though my profession, you know, I deal with the stuff 24 seven, I still learn new things every day and all the time. So sometimes when I come across, you know, new investment strategies and things like that, before I go out there and, you know, start recommending them as a professional, sometimes I like to kind of test them myself and, you know, you can certainly back test things, um, but, you know, nothing beats actually uh, jumping in and, and putting a little skin in the game, for lack of a better term, to test things. Um, I can tell you probably about two and a half years is current allocation, adding to and taking away. Um, and then I will continue moving forward. I'm probably going to stick mainly to, to S&P, uh, you know, the SPY, uh, which I prefer over a lot of the quote unquote ETFs that match it. Uh, and then maybe, you know, convertible bond bonds, uh, individual bonds is probably my three things I'm going to be investing in the most moving forward. Uh, and then obviously throwing a little small cap in there as well. Got it. So about $450,000 uh, in the market between taxable and retirement accounts. So it, it, do you have 401ks, Roth IRAs? What's kind of the breakout on those retirement accounts? We do. So I recently, um, I, I had worked at TD Ameritrade for the last five years as an advisor before I kind of went out uh, into the, the RIA space. Uh, so I opened myself a solo 401k. As CPAs, you know, y'all know the advantages of it. Obviously, it's by far my my favorite retirement vehicle out there, uh, even more so than a, a regular 401k. Uh, but I'd say across my wife and my solo 401ks, give or take about 140k, and then everything else is on the outside in some Roth IRAs. And then we obviously have small portions of, of Roth 401k as well. Uh, I did some, you know, some backdoor conversions, uh, when our income was too high. And then I've just done some straight up conversions the last couple of years, depending on what my income was going to be for the year to try to get things in, into Roths. You know, we're, we're in our early thirties. So getting it over now is, is going to pay dividends long term. If I was 60, you know, it'd be a different story. Uh, but definitely, you know, def focused on, on the Roth moving forward right now. So okay. what do you, what do you plan to do with the, the cash from the sale of the home. That's going to be a big windfall for you in terms of like having that much cash. What, what do you kind of plan to do with that? That's a great question. So I'm currently have about $75,000 cash. I guess I didn't mention that. Try to keep my emergency fund around twenty dollars to $25,000 at any time. You know, even though obviously we have credit cards and things like that, it's always good to, to, to kind of have that at its, you know, finance 101, have an emergency fund. Before I go into the cash, that's actually, you know, a stat I love to tell people. The other day they said it was like 85% of Americans could not afford a $1,000 emergency with cash. They would have to charge it, which that just boggles my mind. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, $1,000 isn't a ton of money. Um, so it is important uh, to have an emergency fund. I, I can't stress that enough. The rest of that cash I've been keeping on hand to do uh, some repairs on the house we're redoing uh, down in Austin. My goal, and I, I can't wait to sell this house, is I'm going to put a majority of that money into the market. Uh, just with you know, kind of the strategies I've employed, uh, I am going to take uh, about two hundred and ten thousand and pay off the mortgage to our house, uh, which is all we owe left. I don't really want to, because our our mortgage is three and a quarter, which is fantastic. But you know, after discussing with my wife for over a year, she you know, on a non financial standpoint, she would just feel better knowing that at the end of the day. We own our house, and if something happened to both of our jobs, we, we wouldn't be out on the street. So it's, it's kind of funny. I'm making a non-financial professional decision to pay off our house, and then the rest of it, I'll, I'll probably get into the market one way or another. And then at some point, I'd love to you know dip my toe in maybe the commercial real estate. I've been reading a lot about that these days, but don't have a lot of experience there. So let's talk about that a little bit, both the house and, and kind of the risk appetite between you and your wife. So 
what percent of your clients pay off their house early if they can or or kind of take the view of, hey, if the rate's only 3 4%, I can earn more than that in the market. What what do people do, your clients, and, and maybe the risk appetite between you and your wife and how you manage that? Sure. So that's one of those, you know, mortgages in general and paying it off is one of those financial planning topics that are far more, you know, behaviorally fi- finance uh, oriented as opposed to logical oriented, if that makes sense. You know, a lot of times if someone's made up their mind and, and they want to pay off their house, even if they had a 0% mortgage, for example, uh, you're just not going to change their mind. You know, that's something that you got to navigate. I would say most people carry mortgages. I mean, this is the United States, right? One thing I like to focus on when I do my financial planning is, you know, let's look at student debt. Let's look at your mortgage. Let's look at your cash flow. You know, does it make sense now to, to knock this out or does it make sense to, to just stick with it? I could make more than three and a quarter percent uh, in the market. You know, let's say on average, I can double that. I'm beating inflation and I'm able to pay off, you know, my mortgage over time. Makes total sense. Uh, unfortunately, the, the wife decided differently. Uh, I guess that's why it's important, uh, you know, to to bring your partner in when you do do financial planning, because if that's going to be a concern for them or if that's something that's important to them, it's definitely something you want to address. You don't want someone to look back 15 years later and be like, "Man, I paid 200 grand in interest over the last 15 years. Why didn't you tell me just to pay off my house with that bonus and I could have invested all that?" So it's definitely something that uh, can bite you if, if you don't address it up front. Yeah. What do you advise your clients to do? Uh, I mean, that's open-ended. Obviously, everyone has a different situation. Unfortunately, I feel like most people buy more house than they need or maybe more house they can afford. Uh, we we laughed when we went to buy our house. Uh, we were actually using a, a VA loan when we were going to buy our initial house. And my wife was, was doing home health. She's a physical therapist. And so she was doing home health at the time, which pays really well. And then I was newly out of the army and working at TD Ameritrade. And so I didn't have a long W-2 income stream there. And if you've ever looked into a VA loan, they're far more tied on everything than you know an FHA. So you have to have two years of history for everything. So we had to get really creative with our, our loan officer and everything to come up with the right thing. And then when they finally were like, okay, you can buy a half a million dollar house, we were like, Whoa, 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 whoa. You know, we cannot afford a half a million dollar house. And they ran all the numbers. We're like, yes, you can look. And we're like, okay, well, we don't care. So we ended up buying a a $250,000 house, half of what they said we could afford. I feel like, unfortunately, most people would go buy that $450,000, maybe even stretch it to to $550,000 house. That's my experience. And then, you know, you've heard the terminology house poor or car poor, things like that. Uh, you, You run into that a lot, unfortunately. Yeah. Who needs a financial advisor and why? And, and, and why do you feel like, I mean, I assume you'll recommend one, you know, why? What's the benefit? Sure. So, uh, you know, pros and cons to an advisor, um, just like there's pros and cons to doing it yourself. Probably the biggest hesitation with using an advisor like myself is it costs money. I get that 100%. You know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Most advisors, if they're good, will be very, you know, self-conscious about that. And they're not going to price clients out of being able to use them. Uh, me personally, if, if you have a real need and I can really help you, I would rather give up, you know, 20 basis points and work with you than just say, sorry, you'll have to go find someone else. That's me personally. I'm different than most. My 100% focus in, in life is not money. I understand it's a tool to, to be comfortable. Um, and y'all are probably sitting there like, oh, oh my God, I can't believe a financial advisor is saying this. But sure enough, that's just, you know, our house motto is, is gratitude makes what you have enough. So that, that's how we live our life. Anyone that finds themselves unsure, you know, uncertainty, uh, when they look at their investments, if, if a day like today or, or a time like February makes them very, very nervous, it may be time to at least, 
you know, approach and have a conversation with the financial advisor. Um, I think what most people don't realize is you don't have to pay to talk to us. I'm more than willing to do, you know, a comprehensive review with someone as, you know, most of the people that I know, my peers would just to see where they're at and see, Hey, do you even need a financial advisor? Are you at a point where that would make sense? Anyone that has wealth, you know, even if they're in the business, they, they can usually benefit from a second opinion or, or someone else. Once you get to the point where you're not living paycheck to paycheck, I can assure you there's probably a, a part of your financial picture in your financial life that, that I can Im- improve for you and either save you money or make you money on. I get the do it yourselfers. Uh, I, I've been, I've been listening, you know, to this podcast and a few other podcasts and I hear these allocations that people in their thirties, forties and fifties have and any financial advisor, you know, in the world would at least be able to educate them on the amount of risk they're taking. You know, Hey, that's great that you're a hundred percent small cap in, in S and P 500, but you've only been investing for eight years and the market's done nothing but go up in eight years. And these are people that, you know, whenever we do hit the next recession or, or basically the correction right now, these are the people that are hopefully going to reach out and at least, you know, educate themselves on, on what advice is available out there. But you're never too young. You're never too, you know, poor to, to talk to a financial advisor. There's, there's a bunch of us, you know, we're here for a reason. One thing I will touch on, uh, and I'd mentioned to the, y'all to this before is if you are looking, you know, for a financial advisor or someone to talk to, you definitely want to look for someone that, uh, does fiduciary, uh, advice. So such as a registered investment advisor. Um, if they are, you know, either a certified financial planner, I carry that designation. Uh, we're held to kind of the highest standard of more morally and ethically, uh, as well as, you know, for as a fiduciary sense, we're, we're held the highest standard to law client first before our own. Uh, we're not commissioned. We don't put you in certain products to make commissions off them. It's, it's a pure asset, asset under management fee. Those are the kind of advisors you want to work with. There's a lot of firms out there that, you know, they're going to sell you front loaded mutual funds or, or turn your account or really just try to get your assets in the door and, and make money off of them. That's kind of what you want to avoid. Uh, the future's, you know, leaning more towards our side of the business, the fiduciary side. Um, and, you know, you can do a quick Google. Heck, you can call me or, or email me. And if you want to work with someone locally, I can look people up in your area. I, I can work with anyone all over the country. I have a lot of friends with anyone over the, you know, all over the country. So I, I would just stress that enough, you know, fiduciary, certified financial planner, or even someone that's maybe like a, you know, CRPC or there's the CFHC or CCHC. I forget what that one is. There's a lot of designations out there. You generally want to work with someone that, you know, is at least showing that they care about their education and, and, you know, care about where they're going in their career and are willing to put in the time to, you know, put you in a better situation. Awesome. So where can people get a hold of you? Personally, uh, there's a lot of ways you can, you can certainly email me. I guess I can give my, my work email is really easy. It's, it's Hunter, H-U-N-T-E-R and it's at T-L Wealth, it's Thomas Lima, W-E-A-L-T-H.com. You know, people can shoot me a question there, uh, or they can, they can call me. I don't know if I should give out my cell phone on this or not. Uh, probably not. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> if you can, if you can look at my email, you know, you can definitely find my cell phone or I can call you. Um, other than that, you know, I'm on Facebook, Hunter Lee Archibald. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, really easy to find. You just Google me. You can find me. I don't have any, you know, scary mug shots or anything out there. So I'm not too worried about it. Yeah. You know, I, I think the financial advisor piece is interesting, right? And I think a lot of people have, either a bad taste in their mouth or maybe they've had a bad experience or a friend has had a bad experience. And so they're reluctant to, to use one moving forward. 100% agree. Uh, that, that tends to be the case. Uh, you know, I just got an email from a client last week and, you know, we were just doing some general prospecting in the area, just letting people know we were around and open to, you know, doing reviews or portfolio reviews or whatever anyone needs. And they're just like, you know, I got burned by a broker in 2008 
uh, I lost 60% or something outrageous like that. Uh, I haven't really been doing anything since then. I've just been putting my money into cash, you know, but I'm open to talking. I'm open to, you know, maybe giving another shot. So that's someone that's 10 years. The market's what tripled in that time. And they've just been putting money into cash because they got, burned. Mm-hmm. you know, they're not doing themselves any, any favors, but at the same time, I understand 100%. They often say, and I forget the exact numbers, but people get more stimulation mentally from losing 10% of their portfolio than they get from making 40%, I think are the numbers. And I'm, you know, that all goes to behavioral finance as well. And it's a hundred percent true when the market's up, nobody's calling you, but the second it takes, you know, a five to 6% dip, your phone's ringing off the hook. So. Yeah. So let's just back up a little bit here. We kind of dove into your, your net worth and, and your job and, and kind of some technical things, but let's go back to your original story. When, when did you kind of start beginning to care about personal finance? How did that come to be? You shared the story about being in the army and, 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 being out in Iraq and coming home and seeing some of your peers spending a lot of money quickly. Maybe talk about that experience. Definitely. So it starts a a little bit before that. Um, I'm 34. So I basically, you know, became a a teenager at the time of the internet. Uh, But I remember when I was about five, six, seven, I was living in Houston at the time. Uh, My mom had bought me some shares of a mutual fund. It was like Stein Row funds or something. I don't even know if they exist anymore. Um, but what we do is every Sunday, you know, you get the paper and it would have the stock quotes in it. And so we'd, we'd run out there every Sunday. I'd get the paper, I'd bring it in and we'd look up the price of the stocks. And of course, then they were quoted in like eighths and sixteenths and stuff. So, you know, it's old school market. Um, uh, but that kind of, you know, initially sparked my interest in, in finance in general and, and more so of investing from there. As I got older, hit 18, I got my first account. It was like a Scott trade account. Uh, this was in, I want to say 2002, uh, give or takes around the whole dot com thing. Uh, that's when I kind of, you know, played around with penny stocks, um, just kind of got my feet wet, started to learn. As time went on, discovered options, discovered futures, derivatives, everything. Um, so really, you know, I've gone, gone full circle as far as investments and, and what's available. Then I, I got in the army. So I was a little bit older. I was 23 when I joined. I wasn't 18. Um, so I'd like to say I had a little bit square head on my shoulder when it came to things. Uh, the, the funniest things I would see is, you know, you get to your first duty station after basic and, and everything. And these kids got four five, six grand in their account because, you know, when you're in basic training and everything, you're there. Uh, we were there for about 15 weeks and they're not, they're not really spending any money. So they go out, you know, they spend a thousand dollars at the bar or whatever. So that was my first experience. But the worst was we deploy, you know, when you're, when you're down there, you're, you're getting paid more, you're getting hazard pay, you're getting combat pay, you're not paying any taxes. And then you get home and, you know, you're gone 13, 14 months and you've racked up 30, 40, 50, 60, however much grand, depending on your rank. Military bases are built to take money from privates is what I've, what I've uh, understood. So you got bars, gentlemen's establishments, expensive places to eat, and you got car dealerships, every, every fancy car dealership you can imagine. And these kids with no credit history will go buy, you know, a thousand dollar down, 18% interest Corvette that costs 40 grand. And if they went the full note, you know, they're going to be paying 120 grand when it comes uh, to the end of it to the point where we would actually have to counsel and get people in trouble car dealership and bought a car without taking, you know, their sergeant or their squad leader or, or their team leader with them. It got, it, it was that bad while it was it. Um, and so that just really sparked, you know, a passion and an interest. Uh, you know, I, I hate to see these guys, you know, risk their lives and, and be away from their family and then have a chance to, you know, get started when they're 19, 20 with a good solid financial background and then just blow that away because they don't know any better. 
So that's how it started. Um, and that was a point where I made up my mind, you know, I'm going to go when I get out of the army, I'm going to go into, you know, personal finance, financial advising. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go more of the, you know, the trading hedge fund route or the financial advising route. And I'm still not sure in goal where I'm going to be. Um, but obviously to this point, you know, the financial advising is kind of the route I've gone. Uh, and, and from there, you know, I, I love to help young people. I love to help people that, that don't know any better. You know, it's just something that was kind of instilled in me over time. Yeah, I think that's an awesome story. You know, I think these experiences that we have in our lives kind of shape, you know, who we are, who we become, and, and sometimes even the professions we choose. I want to discuss something with, you know, in the in the industry as a whole and in financial planning and everything, there's, there's co- some commonly known statistics that people just don't plan well for end of life, whether that's a will or a trust or whatever, however they organize their assets. Maybe just talk a little bit about, you know, what you've seen and from your experiences, you know, what, what should people be looking for? What should they get in place at a minimum? And maybe some of the pitfalls that you've seen people, you know, experience. Definitely. So it's easy for me to discuss this because I've experienced it personally. When, when my mother had passed away a few years ago, she had always, you know, had an estate plan. I was her only child. It was, it was all set up ready to go. And it's ironic because I work with people coming up with estate plans and obviously, you know, getting them to attorneys and getting these things drawn up. And I was almost duped. Um, you know, even though we had a whole plan set up, I still ended up having to go to court um, to settle my mother's estate, which, you know, it's one of those things where it shouldn't happen to someone. You know, I, I questioned myself for a while, like, if this is going to happen to me, how can I be advising people on how to do this? And, you know, I, I think you just don't think it can happen to you. Um, and I think that's, you know, the common person's mindset is, oh, I'm not worried about it. It'll take care of itself. You know, my spouse or, or second spouse or my kids, they'll be fine. But, but honestly, when, when someone passes away, man, it's, it's like the, the devil comes out from somewhere. And I've seen the most, you know, close, tightest families just fall apart when it comes to, to money and finance around, you know, loved ones passing away. Um, so mine, you know, like I said, it ended up costing me, you know, a pretty penny to get this thing settled. It, it obviously all got worked out in the end, but it's just, it's a situation you shouldn't have been in. Um, what I run into the most and probably where I put my most energy, um, is people with kids. You know, when you, when you become a certified financial planner, when you be- become a financial, you know, planner or advisor that studies any type of, of planning, you've got to have guardianship for your children. The example I use, you know, down in Texas, they're a very pro mother state. So if, if you're a, a father and, you know, you have a child that you take care of your own and maybe your spouse is a drug addict and can't watch the child. And then you have, you know, a mother that can, t- you know, your mother could take care of the child and something happens to you. Lots of times the state of Texas would be, you know, more inclined to give that child to their biological mother who can't take care of themselves than to someone that can provide them, you know, a willing, loving home. So that's why my state specifically guardianship is really important. I know other states have different laws, uh, but guardianship, 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 guardianship. It takes a couple hundred dollars to set up. You get a simple living will. You got to name someone to watch your children if something's to happen to you or your spouse or something's to happen to you together. I, I cannot stress that enough. Um, other than that, you know, people, the thing I hear a lot is I don't have that much, so I don't see why I need a will. You know, that, that's, I hate to use the word, that's dumb. You know, you should, you should always have at the very least, you can go online to one of those, I forget the names of them, y'all might know them, but go online to one of those sites that'll do a basic one for you and get a, you know, a simple living will, a simple level trust. I always forget the name of the, the directive, uh, medical directive, last, there, yeah, last medical directed and also 
make sure you have a medical and financial power of attorney set up in case something happens to you, you become incapacitated, especially if you have children. Because if something happens to both you and your spouse, or if you know you take care of them or have guardianship on your own and something happens to you, that can take several days to get worked out in court. And you know, that could be the difference between a child eating or not, or, or you know, a relative eating or not. Um, so all those things you can get them done for a couple hundred dollars. And then once you start getting more assets, there's just no excuse to not have at least a basic estate plan. It really boggles my mind, um, the amount of people that don't do, you know, the simple planning. And it's not their fault. You know, in school, we learn uh, how to calculate, you know, the angles on a triangle and how to put things on a grid and, you know, the 18 different ways to spell a certain word and what letters are silent. They don't teach you personal finance. They don't, they don't teach you how to pay taxes. They don't tell you how to balance your checkbook. So it's nobody's fault. It's just something we as a society need to be better at. But that should be, you know, if you're listening to this right now and you have a kid and you don't have simple guardianship set up for them, you should go online, Google it. And it, you know, start that process. I, I can't stress that enough. Yeah, I think that's awesome advice. And I, I know there's a couple sites out there like Fabric where you can set up a, you know, essentially a free will. I mean, there's all these, you know, online life insurance companies that kind of provide, you know, a will as part of their service or whatever. But I think it's great advice. It's it's crazy. You really don't understand the importance of all these documents until you have to experience them yourselves. And uh, anyway, I just want to go into a, a listener question. You know, the, the financial planning industry and the, the investment advisory industry, typically most people associate that with investing in the markets and stuff. Could somebody come to an investment advisor or a financial planner and discuss maybe re- investments in real estate or, or in other type of alternative investments? Or is it typically just going to be strictly what you'd find in the market or, or buying individual stocks or bonds? So, yes and no. So that's a, that's a, I can go deep in this. I'll try to keep it high level. So depending on the advisor, you know, there's certain advisors where all you're going to get is simple asset management, um, asset allocation. We're going to buy stocks and bonds or mutual funds or ETFs or that's it. When you work with, you know, I mentioned I'm, I'm at a registered investment advisor. Firms like that, we do holistic planning. So we make our money from investing in the market right? Our asset and our management fee. But that is just a small piece of the puzzle. Uh, in fact, generally when, when I'm bringing on a new client, the, the market and investments is usually the eighth, ninth, 10th topic we even get into when we're kind of doing those first initial meetings. Reason being is there's a lot of things that are important based on your situation. So we mentioned, you know, estate plannings. Uh, do you have any heirs? People that are small business owners, you know, have business session planning, or we got to make sure that, you know, they carry enough insurance, insurance in general. A lot of insurance people you run into, unfortunately, will just try to sell you, you know, whole life or, or cash value uh, life insurance policies when honestly, most people would be okay with just a simple 10, 20, 30 year term policy that's going to be really affordable, really cheap, uh, and, you know, care, take care of your loved ones if something happens. So, you know, a lot of items along there we address. Uh, and if there's no need for it, you know, you just skip over it and you don't worry about it. Um, so that's going to be a big difference between a, a broker dealer, uh, which most people deal with, and then us, you know, more of a, a, a private wealth management firm. If you go to, you know, I don't like to name names, but if you go to your neighborhood, you know, Ed Jones or Raymond James or a lot of those independent broker dealers, they're going to do your investments. They may be able to help you do some basic planning, but they're not going to go too far outside of that. So we, for example, if, you know, if you're, have a net worth of $5 million and, you know, over half of that's liquid, we can diversify outside of the market. Uh, real estate, I'm sure, I know y'all have your venture going. It is a wealth builder and a wealth maintainer. 
Uh, and when you get to the point where you can afford to invest in real estate and get into real estate, me, like I said, me personally, I can't wait to be in it and, and be there and, you know, be looking at com- commercial properties and residential properties and creating incomes and cash flows from all that. It is a great wealth accumulation tool and land. They don't make more of it. They always say it's not going anywhere. Uh, and as long as you live somewhere that isn't going to disappear, you know, it makes sense to, to own properties there or at least be part of an ownership group of properties there. Uh, private placements are big for higher net worth individuals. There's definitely a lot of, you know, fancy things you can do. Just something as an example, because people like examples, something we can do with, with some of our higher net worth clients. Uh, we can put together, for example, something called a structured note. Are, are either of y'all familiar with those and how those work? I'm not. Okay. So these are for everyone, and this is by no means a recommendation, obviously, but what a structured note is, uh, it's basically like a fixed asset that's tied to something. So maybe it's tied to an index or a commodity price or a basket of stocks. The cool thing about them is you can, you can basically customize them and make them, you know, whatever you want. They got a bad rep back in 2008 because places like Lehman and, and Bear and all them, they had a bunch of them, which basically became worthless when they collapsed. So it's definitely not something you want to go all in on, but you know, five to 10% allocation is okay. But basically what you do is they have a high rate of return, you know, five, six, seven, eight, 9%. Uh, the ones we're kind of focusing on right now are in the three to five and a half year term. And then basically all, all that has to happen is that index just has to hit a certain benchmark sometime in that term. And you get all your principal back plus interest. Um, now there's ones that aren't 100% principal protected that obviously have higher returns, but then there's ones that have 100% principal protection or, you know, equity link CDs, things like that, where you're, you know, you're protecting your money and you're getting more yield than you're going to get off a, a like-sized, you know, CD or, or treasury in the market. So something like that is something that you're not going to find at, at most shops. Um, I know a lot of the big broker dealers, Fidelity and TD and Schwab, they can do them. I don't know if they'll, you know, customize them. For, for individual clients, unless they have enough money. Uh, but it's just something, you know, that's an example of, of something unique you can get at, at an RA that you're not going to get uh, at most broker dealers. Other than that, you know, collateralized loans, you know, that's where you can actually take a loan off of your securities, uh, which in turn, you know, A, it makes the assets stickier for an advisor, something like that. Um, B, you can generally negotiate a better rate than you could get on a conventional loan. Uh, so you can maybe go do a short-term lease or a short-term loan on a property that you're trying to buy. So things like that are things that we can certainly work on clients with, but it's it's more of a you know a one-off needs basis than it's just something that gets brought up with everyone, if that makes sense. Yeah, I got you. I think there's so many tools out there and so many you know ways for someone to invest their money. I think that's one of the advantages you guys bring is is to have the resources and, and have conversations and, and kind of what's available out there for somebody who maybe doesn't know or, t- or totally understand. So I want to jump into uh, some rapid fire questions here before we conclude. Sure. So, so most expensive jeans or pair of pants you've ever purchased? Ooh, uh, I think when I was like 21, I got a pair of sevens. I think at the time that was like $150. I certainly don't <laughs> do that anymore, but that was like the hip thing in the early 2000s. So yeah, yeah. most expensive shoes. Uh, that's embarrassing. I think that I purchased myself or that I own. Let's call yourself. Probably my, uh, I got a nice pair of Lube Casey cowboy boots, um, but they were like a thousand dollars, but I got them on sale for, I think half off for 500. So that was, that was a while ago. Well, you're in Texas, so you got to have those. Yeah. Oh, they're the best. I, Lube Casey's, that is a direct recommendation. They are fabulous. <laughs> uh, most expensive car. I just bought it. So last 10 years, I was driving my 08 Civic. I just bought a 2018 Ford Explorer. Just XLT, but the top XLT, I think out the door, 37,000. We're going to check for it. 
Okay, most expensive meal out that you've paid for? <laughs> uh, this was actually recently. Um, I actually told my wife about it the other day. I shouldn't have, but I was in San Francisco uh, for a guy's trip a few months ago. Every year we go to a ballpark uh, and some breweries. It's kind of like a thing we do to get away. Uh, we went to this, it's called like A5 Steakhouse. It's like one of the top steakhouses in America, I think it was, or maybe it was San Francisco. Uh, but I got a, a 12 ounce uh, grade five Wagyu steak or whatever. The steak was $380. Oh, wow. So the, yeah, the meal ended up being like six, seven, eight hundred bucks, something like that. It's it's pretty wild. Better have been your best steak ever. It was really good. You could cut it with a fork and it, it melts in your mouth. And now I never have to do it again. So I've, I've done it. <laughs> uh, if you had to guess now, what's your predicted retirement age and net worth of retirement or goals for retirement? So I don't, I don't really want to retire. I, I like working in at least some capacity. Obviously, what I'm doing now, I have a lot of flexibility. You know, I I can work from wherever. You know, I can meet people, I can travel. So I've never really thought about actually retiring. It's funny, I don't I don't have a set dollar. Um, my wife and I, we wanted to be multimillionaires by the time we were 40. Uh, I'm 34, she's 32. So we're definitely going to eclipse that here in the next few years. In a perfect world, if I can kind of double my money every four to six years, that's kind of my goal. That's what I've been on pace here in the past. Uh, just kind of doing some, some of the things I do. Uh, I always tell people, I just want to grow my money until I really can't count it. That, that's kind of what I'm shooting for. So, Favorite books or, or websites or tools that have been influential or helpful to you growing your investments and net worth? Certainly. So I wrote down a list of some books that I feel like are kind of like my top 9, 10, 11 books that I loved mm-hmm. all the time. So I can definitely go over those quickly. As far as websites, this is going to sound silly, but what a lot of people should do is go out there on Investopedia and just type in a term and read about it and then click on the links and, and read about some other terms. If you can do that once a week or, you know, on a 10 minute break at work during the day, just educate yourself on financial topics. Um, you know, I, I love Investopedia. It's great. It's got little, you know, one and a half minute videos. I use tons of, of websites for my job, you know, too many to, to name, obviously. But, um, you know, if someone's looking for something specific, I open you, shoot me an email or find me online. Um, and I can certainly, you know, tell me what you're looking for. I probably have a website that does it. Uh, let's talk about books. Um, some of these are finance books. Some of them are not, but I think these kind of give you a good scope of what you're looking at. Uh, Richest Man in Babylon, George Classen. I've heard it brought up before. It's a great personal finance book. Uh, you can read it in an afternoon. It's really short. Uh, Shoe Dog, Phil Knight. Uh, I don't know if y'all read it. Fantastic book. Love that book. Uh, just his story and his perseverance. And I just, I did not realize how many times Nike was on the verge of just disappearing. So, Mm. you know, it's so, so impressive what he was able to do there. Uh, Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis. You know, he's the one that did the big short and all those. Uh, Liar's Poker makes me wish I was a bond salesman in the eighties. I guess I was a generation too late. I love that book. Ready Player One, Ernest Klein. He lives down there in Austin. Obviously they made a, a movie, but the book's fantastic. Anyone that was born in the last 50 years would love that book. I think it's a great way. Like what I try to do is read a, you know, a book on finance and then a book off finance and a book on finance and a book off finance. Um, other than that, Ender's Game, another classic Orson Scott card. You, you should read it. Kind of makes you realize that no matter what you think you know, there's things you don't know. And I think that's an important message. Lone Survivor by Marcus Luttrell. I read that book in an afternoon. It's an absolutely fantastic story. If you have experienced more than this guy's experience, let me know and I'll send you a dollar. It's a, it's a great way to put life in perspective of, you know, what can happen. Um, so if you're having a bad day, just read about that book. Um, and it will, you know, it's obviously, you know, when he was captured and everything in Afghanistan, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And on that same note, Horse Soldiers by Doug Stanton, they made a movie about all these, obviously, same thing. Those guys basically were cut off from the world. It, it just makes you realize how small life is. 
uh, and you know, not to take it for granted. Other than that, uh, uh, finance one that I'm, I'm reading right now and I love it. Tools of the Titans by Tim Ferriss. He has a podcast as well that's pretty decent. Uh, it's just really cool because it breaks down, you know, the minds of entrepreneurs and billionaires and successful. That's, that's a great one. It's really big, but you know, if you have 30 minutes to kill one day, listen to the, the podcast or go in there and, and kind of read a story. And then finally, I'm, I'm a big U.S. buff. I, you know, I love the United States. I love the history. Uh, there's a great book I read by Brian Kilmeade and Don Yeager called Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pirates. The Forgotten War that changed American history. If you're if you're a warm-blooded American, go read the book. It's a quick read. It kind of makes you understand how America came to dominance today. And you know, it all started about 200 years ago in this off, you know, often known war off the coast of Africa. There's a lot of things you'll read in there, like, oh, that's where that comes from. Uh, I think, you know, everyone should read that book to, to kind of have an idea of how we got where we are and how we kind of got all the uh the luxuries we have as, as Americans over here. Uh so you know, definitely kind of think everyone should read that one. Awesome. That's a great list, both finance book and non-finance book. So uh, that's Hunter, net worth of 1.4 million. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you. I appreciate it very much, guys. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Hunter. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.